This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Driven by the human voice and deeply connected to the black preacher tradition, gospel was a new musical form responding to its time in Chicago in the 1930s. Uplifted by the sounds of blues and jazz and later the Hammond organ, gospel music has been described as the music of Saturday night with the message of Sunday morning. Gospel story begins with the Great Migration, when millions of African Americans from the rural southern United States moved to urban areas in the North, Midwest, and West beginning in the early 20th century. But as this new style arrived on the scene in Chicago, it was not immediately accepted because until this new fusion of music and message came along, most preachers and church leaders believed you didn't sing gospel, you preached it. On today's show, we're going to learn a bit more about gospel story and highlight a brand new show that premieres tonight at 9 on PBS stations around the country, including WGCU. Episode 1 tells the story of Thomas A. Dorsey, considered to be the father of gospel, Mahalia Jackson, a highly influential early gospel singer and one of the most renowned vocalists in the genre, and Sally Martin, whose salesmanship was instrumental to Dorsey's success and gospel music's commercial success. Gospel is a four-part series hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and produced and directed by Shayla Harris and Stacy L. Holman. I spoke with Stacy last week about the new show and about her life as a filmmaker. Let's hear that conversation now. Stacy L. Holman, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you, Michael, for having me. So for starters, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and what led you down the path toward filmmaking? Sure. I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, once I graduated, I made my way to New Orleans where I attended uh, the HBCU, Dillard University. And during my time there, I was majoring in communication with a minor in speech and drama. And one thing my father always instilled in all of his kids, in addition to going to college, we had to go to grad school. And as I'm in school doing a lot of creative projects, uh, I just realized I wanted to continue that. So I applied to NYU grad film school and I landed myself in my dream city because I always wanted to live in New York. And I studied uh, communications. I was focusing on directing. And once I left NYU, I was really focused on doing scripted content. And that didn't latch on right away. But what did latch on is I discovered this story in a newspaper, a couple newspapers, New York Times and the Boston Globe that led me to South Africa. And that was my entree into the documentary world. And from there, I started working with Stanley Nelson, who is uh, very much a part of the PBS um, landscape and worked on several really incredible projects with him from Freedom Riders, Freedom Summer. And I then got an exciting position as a producer on Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of historically black colleges and universities. And at that point, that's when I connected with Henry Louis Gates, who, who will call Skip because it's that's what he usually goes by. Skip and Skip. Okay, yep. okay. <laughs> that they called him that since he was they called him Skippy when he was a kid, and the the name is stuck. Okay. And um, from there, I worked with him on the Civil War series, and I was the producer director for episode number three. And when I got wind that he was doing the Black Church, I was like, okay. I've got to produce that. I've got to be the series producer on that. And that's exactly what happened. And from then, I've had the privilege to series produce not only 
that series, but making Black America uh, through the grapevine. And now we're here with Gospel. So uh, being a producer can mean all sorts of things in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Can you explain sort of the scope um, of what producer means for a show like Gospel? Sure. Uh, In the documentary world, that director-producer line is very gray. You find yourself making creative decisions as a producer and you find yourself producing as a director. But the general term essentially means that we're, I, in this case it was we, because I was series produced with Shayla Harris, who was also directed two of the four hours. We are responsible for the crew. Who do we want to hire as a team from our producers to our archival team, to our composer and even our um, music supervisor. Uh, We also were very hands-on with our graphics person, working on the calendar, uh, figuring out, okay, just, you know, working with our supervisor, who was our post-production supervisor on the post schedule, and really dealing with um, just all the administrative things that can kind of get very boring (laughs) when you're doing uh, a project because there's a lot of administration. You know, the creativity is a little bit, but the administrative part is a lot. And also just making sure that we're just, and also hiring our editors and really just making sure that we're staying on course to the deadlines that we had, which are set by the premiere date for the series. And we kind of work our way backwards. So we're really overseeing just every element of the four hours um, collapse into one and trying to have a 30,000 feet perspective along the way while also being creative. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like in the documentary world, what a producer does. Are you in New York City? Yep, I am. That sounded like New York City in the background. (laughs) Yes, New York says hi. (laughs) Says hi to Florida. There we go. (laughs) Um, When was the, like, how long ago was it that you worked on the documentary that you said you went to South Africa for? That story I stumbled on in 2002, and my first trip to South Africa was in 2003. And the story was uh, highlighting a group of South African Zulu men uh, who referred to themselves as dandies or that's the, the English term, but they call it Uswenka. And what they do is every Saturday night, these men dress up to the nine. Uh, some people will say their Sunday best or their Friday night finest. And they go into a hostel or they go into a parking lot and they find somebody just walking down the street and they say, well, you judge. And the men are literally, you can't say it's voguing because it's not voguing, but it is a sense of movement where they are just gracefully showing off their wares from their shoes to their socks, to their cufflinks, to their watches. And just that story connected to me personally because my great grandfather was a master tailor in uh, Tennessee. And also just looking at the lineage of men in my life from my grandfather, my father, even my boast, even more so my brother, they are, you know, truly uh, dandies in their own sense in terms of how they value dress, um, wearing the suit, uh, coordinating, and even doing that film, I found that a lot of other people really connected to the story because everyone had that uncle, everyone had that cousin that had that suit that they wore through those special occasions and just looked like every time they wore it, it was brand new. 
I'm not sure if that documentary required archival footage, but what I'm wondering is since you started working on documentaries that do require archival stuff, has it gotten easier? Because from the outside, it seems to me like we must be in a different world to put together a thing like gospel in 2024 mm -hmm. than somebody may have been in 2004 and certainly where they would have been in 1994 in terms of just being able to dig up the, the cool stuff that you can use. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And with each each year, in some instances, you are there's more archival that is being revealed, whether a family member found some footage in the attic or some images. Unfortunately, though, the challenge is there's just certain windows and time periods that just aren't really documented, especially when it comes to black life, because um, and I'll use one of Shayla's term, you know, we were excited to start the clock a little bit later in black church. We were starting like before slavery. So and right at slavery. So that was 400 years. So definitely no images there. But, you know, we're starting in the Great Migration. So we were excited seeing there's going to be tons of footage and there was, but that footage was also limited because, like I said, really documenting what black life was, was, was it's expensive at that time. And also too, depending on who was holding the camera, you know, they were looking at certain things and we're looking at this particular area, which is Chicago. So it was helpful starting a little bit later, but we still found ourselves in some corners when we we're just like, okay, you know, is there any more? We kept asking our archival producer, there has to be some other footage of Chicago from the 1930s, you know, 1920s. And in those instances, we, we do a little bit of creative license and we'll find footage that kind of speaks to that or references like city life. Like you'll see a wide shot of people like walking the street may not be Chicago, but it definitely looks like a big city. We just try to keep all the big buildings out of the way. Uh, however, I mean, I think as time goes on and people start really seeing these documentaries and also too, we have our phones, people are documenting their own lives. I think that people will hopefully have a greater appreciation of preserving that and also just looking through those attics and those trunks that are pretty much been ignored for years that belong to your great-grandfather or your grandmother. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, has gospel played a, an important role in your own life prior to this project? It has. Uh, my uh, journey of faith or in the church really started as soon as I was born, essentially. Um, my parents, I grew up in a predominantly white church um, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, lived in Zanesville, Ohio, and they belonged to a small black church, Union Baptist Church. And when I would go there, it was one of those churches, and some people can totally relate to this, that you, in my parents' church, you know, you could draw you know, you could, you could take the program and you could just be distracted by whatever. At my grandparents' church, that was not the case. You had to sit up, sit right, be quiet. You couldn't nod off, you know, don't even think about sleeping. And this is a, a two-hour service. So as a kid, I was just suffering inside because you just want to be outside. You want to be anywhere, you know, an hour's enough, but two hours just felt like a lifetime. However, just that time there really, I feel has really instilled in me just appreciation and understanding of just what the black church is from the small choir that would sing uh, hymns 
um, many of which we covered in the Black Church, you know, just really left a very, just a warm space uh, in my heart. You know, even going up to the altar with my grandfather um, during those moments of prayer, um, you know, that just planted the seed. And from that seed, it just continued just to take root. So as I got older, I found myself seeking uh, a church that spoke to me musically, that spoke to me uh, through sermon. And it was what I experienced in Zanesville. I've only watched episode one, but I look forward to watching mm-hmm. the rest because I, I learned so much and I love to learn. There's a lot in it that I, I really was all new to me, which is, I, I love it. Um, oh, great. How much of the general shape of the history that you tell in this gospel four-part show um, was known to you prior to making it? it? It sounds like you've probably overlapped with it some with previous projects, but maybe mm-hmm. not entirely. Was, was some of this novel information for you too? Yeah, uh, specifically, I just always lean into the women. Uh, you know, we hear about the Thomas Dorseys, um, and we do talk about Mahalia Jackson. I knew Mahalia Jackson. I knew she was from New Orleans, but I didn't really know the full breadth of their stories. Um, like, I didn't know that Thomas Dorsey was kicked out of, you know, he was, he his noses were turned up when he presented his first gospel song. I mean, it was truly you just see the dichotomy of gospel and the church and you see the politics of respectability that a lot of um, migrants from the south experienced and but yet you see the perseverance of them constantly just coming back and fusing their styles of home to what becomes gospel um you know didn't know mahalia had pushback where she is singing and one of the 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 pastor was like well you know you're moving a little bit too much and she is then requested or suggested by Sally Martin that like you need to be wearing a choir robe when you sing. Um, so that's why you see her in so many in archival material with footage uh, with a choir robe on. And Sally Martin, I mean, she was she is an incredible, incredible woman when it comes to the story of gospel. And I was not familiar with her story. And she was really the had the business acumen that made gospel flourish, not just through other churches, but also financially. She opened up after working with Dorsey for many years and really helping him just to establish his sound and spread his sheet music. She then partnered with Kenneth Morris uh, of First Church of Deliverance, who that's where you get the Hammond B organ. That's where the Hammond B organ was first introduced. And together, the two of them formed um, a publishing um, house where their seal their their sales peaked like close to 200,000 annually so they were the most successful black owned gospel publishing company so it's definitely just a lot of like those those intricate details that of just people that were really pushing gospel and and spreading it and you know she was definitely like my biggest like oh my gosh like, I didn't know a moment while doing the series, particularly hour one. You mentioned the Hammond organ. It was really interesting to, I, I immediately Googled, like, when did the Hammond organ come out? And we've, we've mm-hmm. learned over the decades kind of what it sounds like and how it fits into different contexts. But trying to imagine it back then, having never heard it before, suddenly with that kind of music was a really neat thing to think my way back into. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's 
you know, you're going to it's got such a piano. it's got such a distinctive and su- yeah like versus the piano it's so different it's almost like like magical or something well i think it's Federa. she talks about how it's just it's it captures the human voice uh Fredera is one of the scholars in the series but it's just it, it imitates it and you know and any instrument that does that is just you know you just you just didn't know i didn't know you know just how varied and how widespread that that instrument can just reach in terms of the the voice and imitate the human voice singing voice how immersed do you and your team become in the history of these stories um, as you're assembling them over time and how do you manage to not become swamped and you know overwhelmed by because i know you must you know any any editorial process is a challenge but a project like this you must end up with so much on the cutting room floor and you know you have to figure your way through that yeah, I mean, it's a lot of material. Um, you know, I always kind of measure my involvement in the project when I start having dreams about it. I'm just like, if I dream, like, okay, I'm dreaming about it now. So, yeah, it, it impacts all aspects of your life. I mean, one thing nice about doing, you know, the gospel is series is that, you know, you had a great soundtrack to listen to. You know, it just the music was always flowing throughout. And then you had the sermons. Um, you know, that's one thing that we definitely, um, you know, we're listening to a good bit. But to your point, there there were a lot of stories that we had to kind of weed ourselves through, um, a lot of stuff to immerse. And, you know, everyone is a lot of books and there's a lot of scholars who have some incredible uh, books that they've written, um, articles that they've written about, you know, individuals. And that was one of the the hard parts is really figuring out, okay, you know, we, we really felt this, this series, like other series that I've done with Skip, we could, we could do another two hours on it. Um, you know, we're, we're appreciated for the four hours. It was just like, ah, oh, you know, those, those, those extra two hours would have been really great. But what we do in terms of really kind of making it a little bit easier for us to navigate is we have outlines. Um, we really, kind of use that as our guide. And then we have an incredible, uh, we always have advisors um, for each of our series and all of them are just incredible scholars, um, writers, um, in this case for gospel to just knew in and out, you know, the characters, the men, the women, um, you know, even the preachers that we, it was important that we tell those stories. And we've been, collaboration with them you know we would have them look at the outlines and just say you know are we are we hitting all the the beats are there any individuals that we're leaving out um and they would give us great feedback the other thing too is a lot of the stories that we might have really tried to tell unfortunately we couldn't not only due to time but because there wasn't any archive as i you know said before just um that it wasn't there but so it's just it's, it's a whole team of people just kind of coming together and just trying to collapse and then you have obviously our editors who try to who make visual sense of it so that it can be the 53 minutes and each hour can flow from one to the other. And one thing too, last thing I'll say about this is another thing that really helped kind of streamline it is we focused on, there's New York again, uh, geographically, <laughs> there I go, saying hi, um, geographically, uh, the placement of gospel. We start in Chicago. We then go to Detroit in hour two. Hour three, we're on the West Coast, California, um, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And then by hour four, we're in the South. So putting it in these geographical locations really um, was 
a lot more digestible. And one thing Skip is big on is chronological. He wants things to be chronological. So, but we felt that we could still stick to that, um, you know, what he wanted, but also to kind of dip into the future a little bit above as we went across the country. Um, before we have to go, I want to bring up one more name, uh, mostly because I want to play some of a song of his that you play just a little bit of in episode one, but I found the whole song. Um, it dates back to the mid-1920s. Can you tell us a little bit about Reverend J.M. Gates? Oh, my gosh, yes. No relation to Professor Gates, <laughs> just um, <laughs> so folks know. Uh, he was really just kind of the, the trendsetter when it comes to when you think of C.L. Franklin, and even I'll just put T.D. Jakes in that in terms of what gospel or preaching could be. Um, as I said earlier, you know, migrants are coming from the South, um, they're searching for home in need of home. And some of these churches were not, weren't that. And they look to these race records of which you have someone like J.M. Gates who would record a sermon, a song in less than three minutes. And in that people could get a sense of, and he's from Atlanta, so people could get a sense of just what made home home as they were you know longing for it and his records outsold bessie smith i mean that's how popular he was his sermons um he even did a sermon off of a blue song of georgia tom also known as thomas a dorsey um his song was tight like that and that's a sermon that jm gates preached um on three minutes <laughs> for three minutes on a record so he was definitely instrumental when we look at just the influence the impact of the preaching sound and even just the commercial um commercialability of it as well well i'm going to play a little bit of this song it's called stay out of chain stores because it just <laughs> yes because it just <laughs> resonates so much with like right now you know i know it was aimed at you know his black parishioners back then but you know i'm just okay so l listeners this was recorded in 1926 let's just play a little bit of it gentlemen and ladies i'm glad to be before you tonight to introduce some boys that's going to sing a song stay out of the chain store is the top and then why they sing I want you to listen, then I want you to put it into action. Stay out of these chain stores. The time has come, as I've said to you before, uh, for you to patronize your merchants uh, in the town where you live. And to the country people that's out yonder, when you come to town, spend your money with people who uh, will give you credit. Spend your money with the people who I'll give you a job. I'm telling you this for your good. And I, boys, I want you to sing tonight as never before. Just let me tell you people, Lord, for the white and color too. It's time for you to wake up, Lord, and see how they treat you. You better stay out of the chain store. You better stay out of the chain store. You better stay out of the chain store. They'll ruin you, show and you fall. They'll send their advertisement or they do draw you. So it's like he was railing against Walmart and Amazon in 1926. <laughs> 
Exactly. He's like those mom and pop shops, you know, support him. And he was just not only preaching about the word, he was also an advocate, a social justice advocate. So, yeah. Yeah. And that was sort of that, you know, and obviously that was pre what we think of now as gospel, but it was one of Mm -hmm. the precursors to it. And that's part of the story that you guys tell. Yeah. Hmm. And then, and much more. So, and much more. Will you be watching episode one when it airs, like with everyone else, or will you have been immersed in it so much and seen it so many times that you won't? No, I will be watching it. I mean, we finished the series back in September, so we have been a little bit removed from it. Um, so we're all excited to watch it in real time with everybody and make sure we get, you know, those Nielsen ratings for it. But I'll be having a watch party with friends. You'll have all your TVs on at once. <laughs> exactly. Have all, and If you're not home, DVR it. There you go. <laughs> um, last question. What's on your horizon? Are you in the midst of anything else or heading towards something else? Yeah, I am currently developing two projects. One um, historical piece on the history of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and the second one, going back to music, is a history of house music. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. But I want to thank my guest, Stacey L. Holman, is one of the series producers of the new four-part series on PBS called Gospel, which debuts tonight at 9 on WGCU and PBS stations everywhere. Stacy, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you all do. Thank you so much for having me. Part one of Gospel premieres tonight, Monday, February 12th at 9 p.m. on WGCU and other PBS stations around the country. If you're a WGCU member, it's available right now through PBS Passport. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced and directed by yours truly. Our social media coordinator is Bianca Massoni. For now, thank you for listening. I'm I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida. (laughs) 